Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 9, 1 Samuel chapter 6 and 7. When we finished up um, 1 Samuel chapter 5 last week, the Philistine people were still in possession of the precious Israelite Ark of the Covenant. But by now they wished they had never laid their eyes upon that thing. No doubt the Philistines had confiscated many an idol or sacred artifact from a defeated enemy and they brought it home to set it in submission to their own gods whom they were sure were not only superior but also provided them with, with victory. But this time, something was going terribly wrong. The foolish and apostate leadership of Israel, both secular and priestly, had, without consulting the Lord, decided to take on the Philistines in battle near a place called Aben Azer. And they were soundly thumped, losing 4,000 soldiers. And thinking that they could reverse their fortunes and snatch victory from the jaws of defeat, they thought they would involve their Israelite God now, Jehovah. So they ordered that the Ark of the Covenant be brought from its resting place at the tabernacle at Shiloh to the site of the battle. Now the presence of the Ark, of course, brought shouts of joy from the worried Israelite soldiers and moans of doom from the formerly confident Philistines who figured that with the unexpected arrival of the God of Israel, the battle was as good as won for the Hebrews. They were all proved to be wrong. The ark was indeed a glorious sight. And it was also the Lord's footstool when he chose to inhabit it anyway. But God was hardly a genie imprisoned in a bottle who was shuttled around merely to do the bidding of their human masters. Okay. We have been advised in numerous Torah passages that when God wished to speak to his people, he would descend into the Holy of Holies and hover above the mercy seat, the, the lid to the ark. And apparently, what arrived at the battlefield was a golden box, devoid of of the divine presence. And so Israel was slaughtered, this time, to the tune of 30,000 dead. But even worse, the two priests sent to attend the ark, the sons of the high priest Eli, Hophni and Pincus, were also killed. Yet that paled in comparison to the Philistines' capture of the ark of God. The shock of that news was so great that it caused Eli to tumble over backwards from his chair and break his neck. And for his daughter-in-law to be suddenly seized with, a, with some premature and abnormal labor, and so she died in childbirth. The nation of Philistia was characterized by a renowned five-city confederacy. Each city was its own lord or king. Now the ark arrived first in... Ashdod, where the Philistine temple of Dagon stood. 
And there the ark was unceremoniously deposited in a position of submission before the Dagon statue. The next day, the statue of Dagon um, was found fallen over prostrate before the, uh, the ark. But after re-erecting it, the priests arrived the following morning to not only find the god idol on its face again, but its head and hands were severed from its body. Then, a plague of some kind of tumors or swellings, probably like boils, popped up all among the people of Ashdod. And the Philistine lord of Ashdod thought it might be best to move this ark to another city, away from Dagon. And so he sent it on to Gath, Whereupon its arrival, the same plague of tumors began immediately to inflict, inflict Gat's residence. By now, the news had spread of what happened everywhere the Ark of God showed up. And when the Ark was dispatched to a third Philistine city, the people there howled in protest that they didn't want that thing anywhere near them. It was becoming obvious to all that the only solution was to remove the ark of the Israelite God from Philistine territory entirely. But that would have been the worst sort of humiliation for the Philistines to be forced into returning that ark back to their enemy, Israel. Thus they tried all manner of other options by moving it from city to city to avoid that. But the leaders of Philistia came to realize that even if it might have seemed so with their resounding military victory at Ebenezer, they had in no way defeated the Lord God of Israel. There was little choice now but to return it and see if they could find a way to appease this God who was doing to them at will what he had done nearly four centuries earlier to the Egyptian populace. Now we're going to read 1 Samuel chapter 6 and 7 consecutively today to continue the story. But before we do that, I want to make a brief comment on a very astute question that I was asked by a couple of people following last week's lesson. And the question was, how is it that the Philistines were able to handle the Ark of the Covenant and not be instantly killed by God? And of course, the reason for that question is because in Leviticus, Israel is instructed that only a certain clan of Levites is authorized to carry that ark and certain priests authorized to pack and unpack the ark and attend to it. Otherwise, the violator will be instantly struck down dead. And of course, in a later story, that we'll read not too long from now, concerning the ark and King David, that exact thing happened. How were the Philistines able to handle it and live? Now the reason I want to address this issue is that it demonstrates a key God principle that we and all of our Christian brothers and sisters would do well to apprehend. It is that only those who are joined to Israel's covenants are subject to the terms of those covenants. In other words, 
The curses and the blessings that come with our membership, your membership, in the kingdom of God, are only for we members. They're not for outsiders. The relationship between Yehovah and His people is established through His covenants. Those who have not signed on to those covenants have no relationship with the Lord. And thus, the terms of those covenants, both positive and negative, don't apply to them. Here's one of the greatest of all biblical principles. God's laws are only for God's elect. There is, generally speaking, no requirement for a pagan to abide by the Ten Commandments. There is no requirement, and thus no outstanding penalty, for the heathen to avoid worshipping the heavenly bodies. In fact, the Bible makes it clear that the Lord put those luminaries in the sky just for that purpose. As I proclaimed on scores of occasions, the Torah, the law, Jesus Christ, and all the covenants of God with humans are only for those with whom He has covenanted. And the only people He has ever created a covenant with were the Hebrews. But He did make a provision that those Gentiles, foreigners, gare, who wished to join themselves to Israel's covenants made with Israel's God would be accepted into the kingdom of God. Until Yeshua's day, that joining had to be a physical joining. Usually accompanied with a pledge of national allegiance to Israel, even involving circumcision if the foreign convert was a male. But since Messiah, the joining with Israel's covenants by an outsider is a better joining. Because it's a spiritual joining by means of faith in that Jewish Messiah, Yeshua of Nazareth. Now, without doubt, there is a universal curse placed on all mankind that has nothing to do with any covenant. The curse of physical death due to mankind's inherent sin nature as originally caused by our common father, Adam was not based on a covenant. There is... that That is a thing. That curse on all mankind. That all men share. Without exception. But when it comes to eternity and to spiritual death, there is a way out by means of God's covenants. You know... A non-believer is not automatically plagued by the Lord all of his or her days. A pagan isn't automatically assumed to expect a worse earthly future than a worshiper of the God of Israel. The rain falls on the wicked and the good. There is no earthly penalty per se for remaining a pagan, except 
your spiritual destiny is one of assured destruction. And you will have no relationship with the Godhead. And thus you will not be eligible for all of the special blessings, his comfort, his direction, his protection, and his wisdom that such an invaluable relationship brings with it. The Philistines, by definition, were pagans. They weren't party to God's covenants with Israel. They were not among those who were prohibited upon pain of death by touching or looking upon the ark. But the Israelites were. The Philistines weren't subject to the curses and penalties God ordained for the violators of his law because they had never agreed to abide by his Torah. In fact, what the Philistines were about to do in returning the ark wasn't even a requirement of God that resulted from any commandment of God. It was merely a pragmatic choice to end God's oppression upon them. Believers, worshipers of Yehovah, listen to me. Okay? You have been joined to God's covenants with Israel, even if you hadn't realized it. And therefore, you do have obligations to the Lord. If you begin to be disobedient and it's causing harm to yourself or with your relationship with the Lord, you will be divinely disciplined. At least partly to get you back on track. Because you are violating the covenant you signed on to. I don't care if you did it in ignorance. You will suffer consequences for violating his law because violating his law was, is, and shall always be called sin. What else is a sin than violating God's commands? Now as believers, you and I have the benefit of having a Messiah who pays the price for our violation of God's commands. But that doesn't mean it has no effect on us. The point is that a penalty is always due and is going to always be extracted when a believer trespasses, sins against God. It's just that Yeshua takes our stripes instead of us. So oftentimes, we don't immediately feel it. Of course, on this particular occasion, in Samuel's era, the Lord decided to show the Philistines his unmatchable holiness and power. He is, after all, the God of all, not just the God of the Hebrews. So, he displayed his authority, not by killing all those who looked upon or touched his ark, because as pagans they weren't enjoined from touching it, but instead by inflicting Egyptian-style plagues upon those who thought they had captured and could subdue 
the God of Israel. Boy, were they wrong. Right, let's now read 1 Samuel chapters 6 and 7. We're going to read it in just one straight reading. Page 303 if you have a complete Jewish Bible. The Ark of Adonai was in the country of the Philistine, the Philistines for seven months. The Philistines summoned the priests and the soothsayers and asked them, What are we to do with the Ark of Adonai? Tell us how to send it back where it belongs. And they said, Well, if you do send off the Ark of God uh, of Israel, don't send it back empty, but return it with some sort of guilt offering for him. Then you will be cured and you will learn why he has not stopped oppressing you. And they asked, well, what kind of guilt offering should we send him? And they replied, five gold models of tumors and five gold rats. Because that's how many leaders the Philistines have. And you and your leaders all had the same illness. So make models of your tumors and models of your rats that are infesting your land and show respect to the God of Israel. Maybe then he'll stop oppressing you, your gods, and your land. Why be obstinate like the Egyptians and Pharaoh were? When he had done his work among them, didn't they let the people go? And they left. Now take and prepare yourselves a new cart and two milk cows that have never been under a yoke. Harness the cows to the cart, but put their calves back in the shed. Take care, take, then take the ark of, God, of uh, God and lay it on the cart. And in the box next to it, put the gold objects you are sending back to him as a guilt offering. Then send it away to go off by itself, but watch. See if it goes up the road to Beit Shemesh on its own. If it does, he is responsible for this great tragedy. If not, we will know that it's not his oppression which has been over us, but that what has been happening to us has happened only by chance. The men did it. They took two milk cows, harnessed them to the cart, and confined their calves to the shed. And then they put the ark on the cart, along with the box containing the gold mice and the models of their tumors. And the cows made straight for the road to Beit Shemesh, and they took that route, mooing as they went, and turning off neither right nor left. And the leaders of the Philistines followed them as far as the border of Beit Shemesh. Now the people of Beit Shemesh were harvesting their wheat in the valley when they looked up and they saw the ark. They were so happy to see it. The cart entered the field of Joshua the Beit Shemeshi and stood there by a big rock. And they cut up the wood of the cart and they offered up the cows as a burnt offering to Adonai. Then the Levites removed the ark of Adonai and the box that was with it which contained the gold objects and put them on a big rock. And that same day, the men of Beit Shemesh offered burnt offerings and sacrifices to Adonai. And upon seeing this, the five leaders of the Philistine returned that day to Akron. The gold tumors which the Philistines sent back as a guilt offering for Adonai were each one for Ashdod, Aza, uh, Gaza, Ashkelon, Gat, and Ekron. And the gold rats also corresponded to the number of the cities of the Philistines that belonged to the five leaders. Fortified, fortified cities and country villages. The rock is a witness to this day of the great mourning which resulted from putting the Ark of Adonai on it in the field of Joshua the Beit Shemeshi. For Adonai struck the people of Beit Shemesh for looking at the Ark of Adonai. 
he killed 50,070 of the people. The people mourned because Adonai had struck them with such terrible slaughter. The people of Beit Shemesh asked, Who can stand before Adonai, this holy God? To whom can we send it to get it away from us? They sent messengers to the people living in Kiryat Yarim with this message. The Philistines have returned the Ark of the Covenant. Come down and bring it back up with you. So the men of Kiryat Yarim came. We started chapter 7. And brought back the Ark of Adonai. And they took it home uh, took it to the home of Avinadab on, on the hill and appointed his son Eleazar to guard the Ark of Adonai. And from the day that Ark arrived in Kiryat Urim, a long time passed, 20 years, and all the people of Israel yearned for Adonai. Samuel addressed all the people of Israel and he said, If you are returning to Adonai with all of your heart, then be done with the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth that you have with you and direct your hearts to Adonai. If you will serve only him, he will rescue you from the power of the Philistines. So the people of, Adonai, of Israel banished the Baals and the Ashtaroth and served only Adonai. And Samuel said, Gather all Israel to Mitzpah, and I will pray for you to Adonai. So they gathered together at Mitzpah, drew water, poured it out before Adonai, and fasted that day and said there, We have sinned against Adonai. Samuel began serving as judge over the people of Israel at Mitzpah. And when the Philistines heard that the people of Israel had gathered together at Mitzpah, the leaders of the Philistines marched up against Israel. And when the people of Israel heard about it, they were afraid of the Philistines. The people of Israel said to Samuel, Don't stop crying out to Adonai our God for us to save us from the power of the Philistines. Samuel took a baby lamb and he offered it as a whole burnt offering to Adonai. Then Samuel cried to Adonai for Israel. And Adonai answered him. As Samuel was presenting the burnt offering, the Philistines advanced to attack Israel. But this time, Adonai thundered violently over the Philistines, throwing them into such a confusion that they were struck down before Israel. The men of Israel went out from Mitzpah, pursued the Philistines, and attacked them all the way to Beit Kar. Samuel took a stone, placed it in between Mitzpah and Shane, and gave it the name Ebenezer, explaining, Adonai has helped us until now. Then the Philistines were humbled, so that they no longer entered Israel's territory. And the hand of Adonai was against the Philistines as long as Samuel lived. The cities between Ekron and Gath, which the Philistines had captured from Israel, were restored to Israel. And Israel rescued all this territory from the power of the Philistines. There was also peace between Israel and the Amorites. Samuel continued in office as judge of Israel as long as he lived. Year by year, he would travel in a circuit that included Bethel, Gilgal, and Mitzpah. And in all these places, he served as judge over Israel. Then he would return to Ramah, because that's where his home was. And he would judge Israel there too. He also built an altar there to Adonai. Well, the Philistines were in a panic. The Ark of God had been in their possession for seven months and most of their nation had been seriously harmed by some mysterious and malevolent power that seemed to come from its mere presence. 
Now, because of how people have always operated, you can be sure that the everyday common Philistine man and woman blamed these five kings for their misery. The number seven, by the way, is the ideal number. It means completion. So by saying it had been there for seven months indicated that all that God had intended to do to the Philistines, he'd accomplished. And largely by their refusal to take the needed action to rid their country of these plagues during their seven months, it continued for seven months. Now, thus, verse seven, or rather, verse two explains that the Philistine leaders, usually meaning the five lords of the Philistine pentapolis, approached their priests and diviners and asked them not how to get rid of this thing, but rather in what manner it should be returned, so as to give proper respect to Jehovah in hopes he'd call off these plagues. And interestingly, scholars note that these pagan priests and diviners seem to discern just what to do and how to do it because we read about their solution, um, as we read about it, it generally follows the Levitical law on dealing with God in matters of uh, trespass. Now, the religious professionals of Philistia advise their leaders that rule number one is they can't just return God's footstool without an accompanying gift that is indicative of honor and submission and recognition that God is owed something. Now the word used for the kind of gift or offering that is owed is asham. And if you recollect back to our studies uh, of the Levitical law, you'll remember that there were several categories of offerings and sacrifices that were enumerated, each one of them for a very specific purpose. Since there's no actual direct transliteration um, to any other language for the Hebrew asham, there have been a number of dynamic translation attempts that usually can be summed up as guilt offering, reparation offering, or sin offering when translating this word. But the purpose it's used here fits well with the Torah description of its use. And it seems to revolve around this idea that someone is liable and responsible and therefore is at fault in some matter. And so a penalty or a compensatory payment is due to the one who's been harmed. And the one who has been harmed in this ark incident is God. And the idea is that by paying reparations to God for the people of Philistia being at fault, then the oppressing divine consequences lifted by the properly compensated and thus appeased deity. Thus the question the Philistine lords are asking of their top spiritual advisors is exactly what penalty and what form should we pay it in order to appease this God. The Philistines' goal, you see, is to be decontaminated 
by paying a ransom to Yehovah. And the diviners say they need to pay five gold tumors. Now, the complete Jewish Bible and many others say that they need to pay five gold tumors and five gold rats or, or mice. And that's probably not quite correct. Okay. The Hebrew phrase being translated is va hamishak brave zahav. All right. And the Hebrew word va that starts that phrase off can mean either and or it can mean namely depending on the context. The idea of ten golden items, five gold tumors, five gold rats, being prepared as a conciliatory gift conflicts with what it then says later in verses 17 and 18 that there were only five total gifts. So there's been all kinds of interesting gyrations employed to try to reconcile these verses. Now also recall from last week that the Hebrew word ophel is what is being translated in our Bibles as tumor. But its more usual use is, a, is to translate it as mound or swelling or, or even a hilltop of some sort. Now, with all that information then, probably how we ought to be reading this verse when it's taken in context is... Five gold mounds, namely five gold mice or rats. In other words, the Philistine priests advise sending five mounds or five substantial lumps of, of, of gold, each of them molded into the shape of a rodent. So we have one very expensive gold item for each of the five kings of the five Philistine cities sent as reparation to the God of Israel. And that pretty much solves the translation problem. Thus we find out for the first time that in addition to these painful swellings of the body that we learned about last week, there was also an infestation of probably mice as opposed to rats. Because they're said to be out ruining the fields. Now mice infestations were an occasional but regular problem for these ancient cultures. They could multiply like mad, seemingly overnight, and eat enormous amounts of grain before the damage could be stopped. Apparently the Lord attacked not only the Philistines' flesh, but their food supply. It's no wonder they were willing to do anything, suffer any humiliation before their enemy, pay any price to stop these twin horrors. And as verse 5 shows, these religious professionals had a greater and much more urgent respect for Jehovah than did the five lords because they say that Jehovah is not only oppressing the Philistine people and their land, but he's also oppressing their gods. They are admitting that the Philistine gods can't stand up to the God of Israel. And we get a hint in verse 6, that these spiritual advisors had probably been pleading with these five Philistine lords to listen to them for, for quite a while now. All right, but to this point, it had just fallen on deaf ears. After all, these two plagues had been going on now for seven months. Now, this all kind of reminds us of Pharaoh's stubbornness. 
And only now were these Philistine leaders ready to cave in. And so these diviners and priests invoke this same Egyptian memory and they tell the Philistine leaders to stop being so hard-headed because they can't win this battle against this irresistible God and they sure don't want to wind up like Egypt did. It's pretty interesting, I think, that nearly four centuries after it happened, the Philistines, who were in no way involved, involved rather, in the Egyptian affair, were still acutely aware of that infamous happening that history proves put Egypt into a national tailspin for almost 150 years. These Philistine leaders were wise enough and pragmatic enough not to want to see their country decimated any further, and so they were willing to concede. So, they've come up with the gift of reparation. Five lumps of gold shaped like mice. But what about the mode of returning the ark? They were informed enough, and it probably fit with their own cultural concept of how you deal with gods in in some general way, to have a new wagon or cart built that hadn't been used before so that Yehovah would find no cause to declare it contaminated with uncleanness. Then they would use two milk cows to tow this cart back to Israelite territory. Now the choice of two milk cows is interesting. We find back in Numbers 19 that the red heifer that would be used for ritual that, that making that ritual purification concoction had to have never been yoked. And in Deuteronomy 21, that a cow that had never been yoked was needed as a sacrificial beast to atone for an unsolved murder in the land. So the idea that these animals that had not been used for work and therefore in some way defiled that whole concept was familiar to these pagan diviners but there was another reason yet for this choice it's apparent that while the five kings and all their religious professionals suspected that it was Israel's God that was causing all of these troubles in angry response to the Philistines confiscating his ark maybe it was all just a coincidence but how do they go about proving it? So that they, they could be certain that they were on their way to solving this problem for good. The cows were the answer. Having never been yoked means not only had these cows not worked, but they had not been trained to pull a cart. In addition, these two milk cows... They specifically chose two who had young calves. The notion was that if they attached two untrained cows to this cart, meaning the cows had no idea what to do, and against nature these two cows would willingly leave their nursing and bellowing calves behind and willingly walk away as a team pulling a cart along the main road into Israelite territory, then it could not possibly have been coincidence. It had to be the God of Israel that was directing this whole situation. 
Sure enough, the cows went straight away up the road towards the Israelite village of Beit Shemesh, ignoring the pitiful cries of their calves. But the Philistine leaders weren't taking any chances. So they followed the cart within a, with its troublesome cargo right, from a distance to see what became of it. And verse 13 explains that the Israelites of Beit Shemesh Beit Shemesh, by the way, means house of the sun were in the fields harvesting wheat when they looked up and they saw this strange sight of a riderless cart carrying some kind of chest on it and being pulled by dairy cows. Now, since it was the wheat harvest season, that means it was around the time of Shavuot, May or June. And once they recognized it was their precious ark that was being returned to them, they were overjoyed. But these weren't just any Israelites. Beit Shemesh is listed in Joshua 21 as one of the 48 Levitical cities. So at the least, many of the residents were Levites. Since they were Levites, their first thought was ritual. So they chopped up the cart for firewood. They offered the two milk cows as a sacrifice for thanks. The Philistine Philistine leaders watched attentively. And when they saw the ark removed from the cart and the smoke rising up, they decided all was well and so they returned to their cities. Now verse 18 speaks of this great stone in the field of Joshua the Beit Shemeshite that became a permanent witness, meaning monument, to this amazing event. But even though it doesn't necessarily change anything important in the story we're aware of, I'd like to offer another probable correction that I think is kind of interesting. At the beginning of our exploration of 1 Samuel, I explained that there were many problems with the surviving manuscripts and scrolls of the books of Samuel and Kings. And thus scholars and translators have taken some liberties to suggest that certain difficult renderings of the original Hebrew were misspellings. They were copyist errors. And so they replaced substantial portions of the narrative with what they thought it ought to be. However, it seems that what they did was often just a convenient way to solve a problem using their academic credentials as the only proof that their version was the correct one. Now, we've just seen such a case in verse 18 about this so-called rock. Okay. What is usually translated as the ark being laid upon the great rock is literally the great platform of Abel. Okay. What is the, the, the Hebrew reads in this case Ad Ebel Hagadola. All right. And some scholars don't think that the word Abel belongs there. So they removed it and changed it to Aben. Now obviously Abel is a proper noun, a name. And so most certainly the meaning of verse 18 is, as for the great platform of Abel on which they laid the ark of the Lord, it's in the field of Joshua the Beit Shemite until this day. But what's also notable is that in verse 19, is that where it says Jehovah struck dead, many of the people of Beit Shemesh, we again run into a translation problem. 
The complete Jewish Bible and many others say that 50,070 people died. But what Josephus says and what some other manuscripts say is 70 people died. Okay. This makes far more sense. Beit Shemesh was a very small little village. And there is zero possibility that 50,000 people living, that there are even 50,000 people living there, let alone that can be killed. Now, since Hebrew doesn't employ numbers, but rather letters that can be used as numbers, there's no doubt that some type of mistranslation or corruption has occurred here with regard to the amount of people who died. But the second issue, I think, is the bigger one. Why did God kill them? God made the Philistines sick. And he created havoc with their food supply. But here we have God summarily execute 70 residents of Beit Shemesh. Some are all being Levites. For what crime? Since we in some ways discussed the principle at work here earlier, let me just summarize it by saying that the Levites, or even the regular secular Israelites were held to an entirely different standard than the Philistines by God. These Levites had no right to even look upon the ark unless it was fully covered in a protective cloth. In fact, there's not even any mention of priests being present. And priests would have been necessary to cover or uncover the ark as well as to offer the proper burnt offerings. Thus, these enthusiastic Levites began dealing with God's ark in thoroughly unauthorized ways, and instant death for 70 of them was the result. So as you can imagine, they were more than willing to pass that ark forward to somebody else to deal with, just as the Philistines had done. So in light of this sudden slaughter... All these joyous but careless people, the surviving residents of Beit Shemesh, posed this question among themselves. Who can stand before Jehovah, the holy God? To stand before means to attend in in an official capacity. In other words, who could attend the ark and not get killed in the so doing? And one has to seriously wonder at this point. If so much time had passed since a proper priesthood had existed in Israel, and since an era when people consulted the Torah to see what God's laws and ordinances actually were, that even these set-apart Levites didn't know or care to examine the law and find out, What priestly office could properly attend the Ark of the Covenant? You know, this is a a sobering lesson here. But I hesitate to say it, because I don't want to sound cynical or judgmental. But as I look back on my own church experiences, and as I listen to Christian television or read sermons on the internet... I am flabbergasted at times at what passes for truth. I am still heartsick that I was so willing for so long to 
gladly gulp watered down and spoiled milk as though it was heavenly manna. All I hear are doctrines, doctrines, and more doctrines, and some of them some strange mix of warm, fuzzy emotions and current political correctness and a little bit of scripture to kind of all wrap it up. All I see are obscure Bible verses or parts of verses lifted out of context and patched into some rousing speech to prove some predetermined agenda of the speaker. Who consults God's Word anymore? And I wonder if God looks down upon His set-apart church at times in the same way He looked down upon those set-apart Levites at Bet Shemesh who had all but lost any true knowledge of God's laws and commands and preferred instead to just wing it. People who hope that God's mercy is sufficient to ignore their, our, blatant lack of reverence, our passivity, our disinterest, how about intentional ignorance of his commands? Or, or, or casual disregard for the infinite holiness of the Almighty God? Well, I don't wonder anymore. Holy Scripture makes it abundantly clear that he just doesn't look the other way. He keeps a record of it all. And someday we're each going to have to stand before his throne and answer for it. Thank God we have a Messiah to bear for us what those 70 Levites had to bear upon themselves for a very cavalier indifference. But that doesn't mean that we have fully escaped accountability. The survivors of Bet Shemesh decided to send messengers to a place called um, Kiryat Yarim meaning city of forests, and inform them that, hallelujah, Israel had its ark back. Now come and get it. What made them think of the people who lived at Kiryat Yarim as possibly those who can stand before God? About eight miles northeast of Jerusalem, about two days' journey from uh, Beit Shemesh, there was a hilltop community that lay at a very strategic convergence of the territorial boundaries of Judah, Dan, and Benjamin. Before Israel conquered Canaan, this same place, now called Kiryat Yarim, was called Kiryat Baal. And it went by the alternative name of Kiryat Baal Judah in Samuel's day, even though here it's called Kiryat Yarim. The point is, this was a very ancient high place. A place that from time immemorial was a worship center to the gods. It was common then and it still is for the adherents of one religion to take over the worship center of another religion 
and destroy its gods and cult items, ritually cleanse the place, and then install their own new gods, her god. That's what happened at Kiryat Yarim. Undoubtedly, this particular hilltop has seen a number of gods and their cult centers come and go over the centuries. Thus, at one time, Baal was worshipped there. But apparently, some priests and Levites of Israel took over the place and set up Jehovah worship. And this is who the Beit Shemeshites were interested that they would come down and get that Ark of God. Now, while these verses don't specifically say that this man named Avinadav and his son Eleazar were authorized Levite priests, later biblical genealogies show that not only was Avinadav's son Eleazar a priest, but that he had two more sons, Uzzah and Ahio, who were also priests. There can be no doubt that this Avinadav that's spoken of here was a recognized Levite priest at this time. Avinadav and his family came and fetched the ark, and they installed it somewhere at the community of Kiryat Urim, and there it resided for two decades. Why didn't they take it back to Shiloh, where the tabernacle was located? There's been a lot of debate about that. And the bottom line is that obviously something catastrophic happened at Shiloh, either physically or politically, to make it unsuitable anymore as Israel's common center of worship. Some speculate that Shiloh was destroyed, and there is archaeological evidence of that. Others speculate that the Levites and priests moved out and abandoned the place after the, uh, after the Philistines took the ark. And this could even account for the presence of the priest Avinadav and his family at Kiryat Yarim instead of at Shiloh. Well, was there some kind of makeshift tabernacle then? At Kiryat Yarim, or perhaps some common tent to shelter the Ark of the Covenant? Or did Advinadov place it in his own home? We're going to discuss that more next time. When we continue the book of 1 Samuel and the Odyssey of the Ark of God.